Today's readings show us clearly who wins out in the last, in the last, in this life of this cosmos. The first lesson from Jeremiah 3 shows us clearly that the people of God will be cared for and watched over and given an inheritance. The epistle also from Jeremiah, this time chapter 23, tells us that the king is coming. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he is called, the Lord our righteousness. Now this all seems, I'm sure, appropriate enough with Advent upon us next week. The king is coming and we are to prepare. The gospel prepares us to understand the true nature of this king, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world, say the people who saw the miracle. The miracle attests that this king, this great shepherd, can and will truly take care of and feed his people, his flock. Indeed, this is the king, the only king that is truly divine, despite the eastern emperors and the pharaohs and eventually the Roman emperor's claims to be divine. And which, if you're not familiar, in the early church in the West, this was, well, in the East too, this was a pretty big problem because the emperor demanded worship, so he had to burn incense to the emperor. And this is why a lot of Christians lost their lives, because they refused to burn incense. They would work for him, serve him, be good citizens, but we're not going to worship you as God. So today, we sing praises to and worship this almighty king, this king of the world, king of kings, lord of lords. We anticipate his coming, remembering his first advent where he became incarnate, became a baby, and looking forward to his second advent where he comes to judge the quick and the dead, those that are alive and those that have died. In light of this king, and his reign over the world, and in light of our own St. Andrew's Church and her status as a small mission at this point in her life, and finally, in light of that much-anticipated beginning of our formal catechesis for this year, I would like to visit a subject usually much undervisited in the Catholic world, evangelism. We are called to take this gospel, this good news of our Lord Jesus Christ, the news of the king of the world who has come, we are called to take that into the world. But the way that evangelism is popularly defined in our current Christian culture in America, the big picture, that way of defining evangelism is really not, in my humble opinion, the heart of what is meant when the scriptures define the term. For some of us coming from an evangelical or Baptist background, we remember the four spiritual laws, a little booklet. I had all the laws memorized. That was my job, was to memorize the four spiritual laws so I could present the gospel of Jesus. Or maybe some of you knew the Romans Road or other little chick tracks. Um, Some of them get a little violent and a little negative. These things are not the heart of evangelism. Door-to-door proselytizing is also not the heart of evangelism. Now, don't hear me wrong. Tracks and door-knocking are not out altogether, but we've really lost the way in North America in the church of evangelism. 
We seem more concerned to revisit the 19th century revivals than we do to model a biblical picture of evangelism. Now keep in mind, most of you are familiar with this history, the 19th century, well, 18th and 19th century, the 18th century uh, First Great Awakening was interesting and, and sociologically really interesting. The Second Great Awakening is sad because the leader of that uh, was a heretic. So what did we just baptize all these people into? Now, I trust we baptize them into the church, but with a lot of really bad teaching, even heretical teaching. Um, so you, you think of big tent revivalism, right, where, where they would pitch the tents and everyone would come like to the field out there, right in front of our church. And they would meet out in a big tent because the churches couldn't hold that many people. If you think of the First Great Awakening uh, and the Wesley brothers, they literally were preaching to up to 10,000 people at a time. Now keep in mind, what kind of lungs do you wear when you're preaching with no PA system to 10,000 people? I don't think anyone can do that today. That blows my mind. It's like, everyone be quiet. Come on, really? 10,000 people with kids? and Right? That's crazy. And my mom can't hear anything I say when she comes to church and listen to me preach. Well, it might have to do with her being deaf. But um, So when we say evangelism in this country, it is so easy to picture a big tent out on a field and everyone coming to hear a revival preacher. Don't think that way. This idea of preaching and calling like the Wesley brothers in the First Great Awakening. By the way, Benjamin um, uh, uh, Franklin, he, he, you can find his quotes. He says, oh yes, Whitfield, the greatest orator of our time. Whenever I go to hear Whitfield preach, I leave all my money. I take it out of my pockets and leave it on my dresser. Because this man's oratorical skill is such that I will put it all in the plate as it goes by. He says, and I'm not having that. I just leave it at home. Um, but this idea of preaching and calling, remember, it is only the front end of the Great Commission. For the Great Commission to be truly effective, it also must, absolutely, has to be about discipleship. So I would ask you to redefine evangelism in your mind. Reprogram your thinking to understand evangelism as discipleship. In fact, just seeing a big white board in your mind that writes out evangelism followed by the equal sign, then the word discipleship. Just evangelism equals discipleship. That's truly what it is. And I think this will get us on a much more biblical model of evangelism and will help us to avoid the more current model that produces such a small retention rate. Because, of course, commitment to Jesus without discipleship usually does not produce Christians who will continue down the path of salvation. The studies have been done, and the big tent revivalism and the big continued big tent Billy Graham-style crusades. I'm not saying anything about Billy Graham. I'm just saying that this style does not produce a majority of people that come to make a commitment. They don't end up living life. It's actually a pretty small percentage 
of people who make a commitment at a crusade of whatever, whoever the evangelist is, it's a pretty small percentage who continue down the road. Now, I'm glad for those, those, that small percentage. But I don't think that's what we're after. Let's just grab a few. No, let's open up the doors of the church and let's bring in the world. But it's a different program to do that. It's a different way of doing it. Because of the evangelism experience of so many of us at this time in the life of the church, and perhaps particularly our local parish, the question that is really before us is something like, how should the church Catholic do evangelism? Obviously, our first answer is to define it correctly, and that means to find it in terms of discipleship. The second point I would like to explore is the issue of relationships. Most people who are in church today are in church because of a relationship. Not all, but the overwhelming majority. All the studies over the last 50 years have shown that relationships are the most important factor. Someone who sits here today knew someone. They were invited They saw Christ lived out in someone's life. There was connections and relationships going on. Remember that discipleship is a long-term investment that it often starts quite early in a relationship. We're all aware of this when we talk about children, especially our own children. We must consistently disciple them over the long haul from infancy to adulthood and beyond. Does that sound like a slogan? We forget about this truth, though, when we talk about evangelism. But Jesus developed relationships, some of which seem to start earlier than the picture or images we have of those relationships in the Gospels. Some of them start abruptly and decisively. We see the introduction of Jesus to someone. All of the relationships that are successful, meaning the one being discipled discipled, imitates his master, took time. Jesus spends years with his 12 disciples. He spends even more personal time with the three closest to him, Peter, James, and John. And seemingly we see a unique relationship of deep friendship between John and Jesus. In evangelism, we must remember the long view and the fact that discipleship can often start very early. In fact, it may be that most of the time discipleship starts early. A friend grows to know you over the years and becomes interested in your faith. Way before this friend of yours is baptized, he is learning about the faith and growing and understanding because you're his friend. It can't help but happen because of the friendship that you have. These are the beginning phases of true discipleship. And it's often termed proto-catechesis. Because way before that person is going, hey, wait a minute. Can I get baptized? Can I have this life that you have? In which case they're going to come to catechesis and, and be catechized in the church formally. Way before that, proto, before that is this other catechese that that happens just by being your friend. Yes, we want that person to confess Christ and enter Christ's body through baptism, but discipleship has already begun before that. We don't often think of evangelism and discipleship in these terms today. We think of them in terms of programs and little tracts that I can hand out, or now I'm going to, oh, I'm going to send you our YouTube video of how to become a Christian. Right? I mean, I... 
I mean, yes, we need to use the technology. I'm not decrying that. But we think that technology and, and something to hand out replaces relationships, and it doesn't. That it can replace our hard work of actually loving people, and it doesn't. It was much more common in the early church to think of evangelism and discipleship in terms of relationship. And at one time in the life of the church, you went through at least a year-long discipleship and formation time before you ever got to baptism. But evangelistic discipleship starts even before becoming a catechumen. And thus we have that term proto-catechesis. If we have such a view of evangelism, a few things become obvious. One, the mass evangelism of the revivals will not be the norm. That just doesn't fit into the model of discipleship. What's the earliest exception you can think of? Pentecost. 3,000 joined the church in one day. The church at that time was about 120 to 150 people big. Suddenly we have 3,000. Does that, does that change the culture of the church overnight or what? Um, so there are exceptions, don't get me wrong, but the norm will not be this mass evangelism type of thing. Two, the church will likely grow more slowly than our Christian culture would suggest, and more slowly than um, Big Bang Church, if you will. It will grow more slowly than our picture of evangelism from the 19th century Finney revivalism. Okay? Now, don't, again, don't hear me say that we should never expect God to act amazingly in bringing converts into the church. Don't forget Pentecost, 3,000 in one day. The baptismal service must have been very, very long. <clears throat> However, we can under also understand that the preaching was done by an apostle on that day, and that the Holy Spirit had just descended upon the infant church to birth her into the world with fire and with power. So, trust me, you've just got a podunk priest in the mountains. That's not probably happening here. But God can still do amazing things in our little communities around us, in the basin, reaching down into Greenville, over into Susanville, down into Chico. We've got a pretty big area that our church represents. But we might as well acknowledge that evangelism, seen as discipleship, will have a slow growth model. The benefit, of course, is that this view of evangelism will produce a much higher retention rate. One way to say it would be that real discipleship produces long-term Christian living, whereas flash-in-the-pan evangelism often produces burned-out disciples. The flash-in-the-pan evangelism view has produced way too many burnouts, and you've all met them, I'm sure. I've met them, I've worked with them, gone to church with some of them. I've known a number that no longer attend church at all. They've all given up. It makes me so sad. Let me give you a scenario that is all too common. A young 20-something, end of college, beginning of career, time of frame of life, becomes excited about his faith, wants to serve God, so he attends the missions conference at Urbana. 
signs up for a two-year stint, goes abroad, has little to no support from the church itself, has to face situations he's not prepared for, hasn't been trained for, feels less useful than he could be if he had the right training, comes back burned out, almost destroyed, and has no help from the church to debrief and rehabilitate. In fact, very likely the church is embarrassed because he doesn't have rosy reports reports from the front line. A seminary professor says this, I suspect that about half of our divinity students are, if truth be known, functional catechumens rather than people of settled faith consciously preparing for ministry in communities of similar faith. And that quote I took from about 35 years ago. It's not gotten better. Please consider this. How is it that if our divinity students in this culture are essentially just getting to the life stage of being ready for baptism and confirmation, how is it that our undergraduates are ready for the mission field? That poor kid who goes to Urbana gets excited. He's not. He's not ready. Flash in the pan evangelism can do great damage to God's children. A real evangelism that is a part of the Great Commission that is concerned with real discipleship will tend to produce long-term Christian living. These disciples will be ready to confront and deal with the challenges and the callings that God has upon their lives. These people will be in it for the long haul as missionaries and clergy, yes, but also as housewives, mothers and fathers, electricians, business owners, barbers, students, and local politicians. We need real formed Christians in all of life. This is not really what we see in the church today. This type of evangelism, of discipling people into Christ's household and into mature Christianity, this is the evangelism that the church Catholic must participate in. This is the missional attitude that we as a parish must own and live out. This is how we will grow our local parish and grow the kingdom of God. But yes, it does begin with relationships, and relationships begin with reaching out of ourselves, often out of our comfort zones, and to love the people around us. We must grow the church steadily, with strength, not with flashy slogans and shows and programs, and essentially with Christian bling, It doesn't work. The church in America is about as immature, I think, as she's ever been. We want to be a productive part of our society as Christian men and women, as Christian families, and church communities. When we influence our culture with all these good uh, disciples, we grow the church and we benefit both our culture and Christ's church. So as we move into the season of preparing for the Incarnation, Let us work on relationships of love and friendship to prepare others to meet the incarnate Christ. It will be slow. God will surprise you with the speed sometimes that you didn't expect. But just trust that it's going to be slow, steady, sometimes slogging through the the mud to be faithful to our community, to witness Christ to our community. Let's see our relationships work for the glory of God. Let's realize that evangelistic evangelistic discipleship starts early, earlier than we ever think. Seek after those kinds of relationships and love those people because that's what Jesus would do. Not just to have more 
butts in pews, but because Jesus would love them. I complain sometimes that as I love people into the church, it's usually other churches. It's usually not my parish. I, I could count a whole slew of people. And I just have been doing it down in, at Christ the King, which, okay, was my job, but I knew that I was going to give this up to someone else. So let's work on our parish. Let's work on bringing people here as well and love them because that's what Jesus would do. When we live life this way, we'll undoubtedly end up loving a lot of the people that we love into the church and particularly even into our parish. Amen.